So we're looking at the first 14 verses of Genesis, or pardon me, the first 16 verses of Genesis chapter 14. And we're going to cover it all under two headings tonight. First, what did happen? And secondly, the significance of what happened. What happened? This is an interesting and a, frankly an exciting story recorded for us in the Old Testament. Abram was sojourning in the land of Canaan, which is modern-day Israel. And we are introduced in chapter 14 and verse 1 to four kings who lived east. And so these four kings lived in the nations that would be east of modern-day Israel. Kedor Leomer seems to be the head of them. And there's Amraphel and Arioch and Tidal. And these four kings had subjected a number of the city-states in the area around Abram to themselves and had imposed a tribute upon them 14 years prior to the section that we read about tonight. And so obviously there had been wars previously and Kedorleomer and his alliance of kings had conquered these small city-states. And they had imposed a tribute upon them that year by year they should receive a a heavy tax from these city-states that they had subjected to themselves. All went well for 12 years. And then in the 13th year, these five kings that we read about next in in verse 2 of chapter 14 rebelled. They stopped paying their tribute to the king's of the east. Perhaps they thought they got away with it because the 13th year seemed to come and go unnoticed. Maybe the kings of the east expected that they would have their tribute uh, later. Perhaps the tribute had been delayed for some reason and a couple months after the time that they were accustomed to receiving it, in it would come. And so they didn't act in the 13th year. Or perhaps circumstances in the east kept the kings detained. But for whatever reason, the 13th year came and went without any trouble. In spite of the fact that these five kings of the city-states around Abram did not pay their tribute. But in the 14th year, in the 14th year, accountability is coming to these five kings in the region surrounding Abram who had not paid their tribute to these powerful kings of the east. And powerful kings they were. Obviously they win these wars here in this section which shows their superior might. But when we read about who they defeated in verses 5 and 6 and 7... We're all the more impressed with these kings from the east. For among these people groups represented in verses 5 and 6 and 7 are giants. We hearken back to the stories of the Nephilim and all the various theories surrounding them. Regardless of how these persons became giants... They were giants. It's recorded for us elsewhere. You can cross-reference with other references to some of these people groups. The 
Rephaim and the Zuzim and the Emim. These were giants. And perhaps these people groups are mentioned here in passing to give us an idea of what sort of kings these kings from the east were that we might be all the more impressed with Abram's victory. It's, it's not given to us explicitly why these people are mentioned here in this passage. And so that hypothesis seems perhaps the most likely that on the way to coming to exact tribute from the five kings who were over the city-states around Abram, these kings came through and conquered several uh, people groups who were giants. So they come and they make this big campaign of war, passing through the lands of the giants and defeating them, and then coming down upon the city-states surrounding Abram and Lot. And there is a battle in the valley of Sidim, which is full of bitumen pits, which is like asphalt or tar. And so the men of these five city-states who have not paid tribute to the four kings of the east get wind that the powerful kings of the east are on their way. And they think to themselves, we have better arm ourselves and take our stand against these kings. We've made our choice not to pay our tribute, and now the time of reckoning has come, and we need to face them. So they square off in the valley of Sidim. Before long, the battle starts to go bad, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and as they fled, some of the people fell into the pits. Perhaps this was a hazard of waging war in such a place, or perhaps as John Calvin postulates, those who are on the losing end of this battle were throwing themselves into the pits to escape the inevitable death at the edge of the sword that awaited them. The battle perhaps was raging so fiercely that these men would rather throw themselves in pits than suffer under the harsh and cruel um, uh, sword of the kings from the east. In any case, these kings from the east come in and conquer convincingly. And they take forcibly the tribute and then some that they had been owed. It says in verse 11 that the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. It seems that they basically robbed them blind. There was nothing left. Perhaps the tribute was heavy. 20%, 30%, 40%, we don't know. Perhaps it was a fixed amount regardless of what the harvest was like in that area. In any case, it likely wasn't 100%, but that's exactly what happens here. The kings come in and they take for themselves everything. And they leave Sodom and Gomorrah destitute. And then the point that brings us to, that brings the biblical author to include this account in the biblical narrative, verse 12, they also took Lot the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, 
and his possessions and went their way. Notice in passing that Lot is now dwelling in rather than near Sodom. Verse 12 tells us that Lot was dwelling in Sodom. When the end of verse or the end of chapter 13 verse 12 says that Lot moved his tent as far as Sodom. So Lot had gone to pitch his tent near Sodom. And now in verse or chapter 14 we read that Lot is living in Sodom. It's possible that Lot had even risen to a position of authority in Sodom. Perhaps he had become one of the elders of the city. Chapter 19 and verse 1 tells us that Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom, which is a place that the elders of the city would sit. Something like a governing council, like a city council. Perhaps this explains why Lot was in Sodom as opposed to being in the Valley of Sidim fighting. Perhaps Lot was among the ruling class in Sodom and Gomorrah who, was, who were exempt from battle. And so he stayed back in the city, but after the kings from the east came in and conquered and advanced as far as the city, they took Lot and the ruling class and all of their families captive to come with them. In any case, they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. But one escaped and came and in verse 13 told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite brother of Eshcol and Aner. These were allies of Abram. Somebody comes perhaps wounded almost certainly out of breath and exhausted, and tells Abram, your nephew has been captured. Your nephew has been taken. You will remember that just a chapter prior, Abram gave Lot his choice of the land. If you go to the left hand, I will go to the right. If you go to the right hand, I will go to the left. And Lot had chosen for himself the better portion of the land. Lesser men may have said, well, Lot made his choice, so be it. And after the chaos subsided, go down and move into this lush and fertile valley himself. Well, that's not what Abram does. When Abram heard, verse 14, that his kinsman, and the word here is brother. When Abram heard that his brother, in Hebrew, brother, had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them and went in pursuit as far as Dan. It seems that Abram's allies also went with him because if you look at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 24, Abram says, Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. These were the men who were mentioned in chapter 14 and verse 13, the allies of Abram. So it seems that we have a tally of the armed men that Abram himself led. But it's likely that Aner and Eshkol and Mamre each also led a company. And so here come these allies now, arming themselves to go after the kings from the east. The kings who had slayed giants. The kings who had come in and decimated the armies of the five kings of the city-states. 
And they go in pursuit as far as Dan, which is roughly 175 kilometers. Abram, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, and each of their respective companies, pursue 175 kilometers after these kings from the east. When they get there, what we see is that they divided their forces against them by night, verse 15. He and his servants and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Hobah is another 65 kilometers from where this battle at Dan happened. So Abram, Aner, Eshkol, and Memri, and the companies that they lead chase 175 kilometers come upon these kings from the east at night, divide themselves and attack from various points. And it seems like they routed them at that point. But some stragglers escaped and left. And Abram, Aner, Eshkol, and Memri pursue another 65 kilometers after these folks to make a total end of them. And so we see that Abram and the very likely relatively small army that comes with him make a, dare we say, miraculous defeat of these kings from the east. And they bring home Lot and all of the other people who had been taken as well as the possessions. This is what happens in this text. We'll look at the aftermath of it more next week. But this is the details of what happened here. As you can see, this is a pretty exciting story. This is one of those stories in the Old Testament that makes for uh, good bedtime stories with our young boys. It's one of those Old Testament stories that gets your blood pumping and you get excited to see the people of God uh, taking action against these evil enemies and winning and conquering over them. This is an exciting Old Testament narrative. But what is its significance? What is the significance of what happened? At a basic level, this story is an instance of God's temporal care for His people. We read in 2 Peter and chapter 3, No, I have the wrong reference here. Probably 1 Peter. No. No, sorry. 2 Peter chapter 2. We read in 2 Peter chapter 2, speaking of the later narrative when God brings Lot out of Sodom and Gomorrah, when He's about to destroy those two cities, we read that God rescued, in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7, Righteous Lot. Righteous Lot. It seems that Lot was one of God's people. Lot was a worshiper of Yahweh. Lot certainly didn't measure up to the stature of Abram in 
chapter 13, Abram was certainly the better of the two men in that exchange. Lot chooses for himself the most fertile part. As the younger man, as the one who had not been promised the promised land, Lot didn't hesitate, nevertheless, to take his first pick rather than deferring the choice back to Abram, which we might have expected a better man to do. Lot goes and makes his pick and settles in the most fertile place of the valley. He's maybe not a hero of the faith, but Lot seems to have been one of God's people. Righteous Lot, he is called. And so we see at a basic level that this story is an instance of God's temporal care for His people. Lot was God's own, and God rescued him. God doesn't always provide temporal rescue. Neither in the Old Testament nor in the New Testament. Sometimes God's own people are killed. But this is a story with a happy ending. There is enough discouraging things that we read that it's okay once in a while to just celebrate. That God, in this case, rescues one of His own. And this teaches us in itself that sometimes God doesn't unfold hard providences to us. God disciplines those He loves, yes. Sometimes God does unfold hard providences to us. But sometimes we face smiling providences. Sometimes God works things out not only for our ultimate good, but even for our temporal comfort. And this is a case in point. God rescues His own here in this section. In this instance, God purposed to save one of His people and not even the powerful alliance of kings from the east could stand in His way. God having purposed to rescue Lot, not even a powerful alliance of kings from the east could stand in His way. We are not at the mercy of the powers that be here in this fallen world as if no one can overcome them. If God should purpose to do you good, even in a temporal sense, God is able to do you good. And so, this passage helps assure us that even in the midst of the chaos of this fallen world, God does at times unfold pleasant and comfortable providence for His people. That's the simple significance of this story, but it bears noting as we make our way through the text. And yet there's more significance to the story than that. Abram's actions here foreshadow later biblical characters and events. Let's look at this idea more closely. Abram is acting like a benevolent and powerful king, battling and triumphing over other kings. First of all, Abram acts like a king because he is a king. In the city-state structure of that ancient time and place, Abram is essentially a nomadic king. He has 318 servants trained who were born in his house. So that would include uh, trained fighting men who had been born in service to Abram which would obviously not include then women and children who were also born to Abram, which would also not include servants that he had who were not born in his house. So this guy had hundreds and hundreds of servants. So this helps you have an idea of why he and Lot 
we're having trouble existing in the same open space. We're basically talking about a nomadic civilization, a nomadic city, as it were. And just as there was a king of Sodom, there was a king of this nomadic city, namely Abram. More than that, Abram has a divine right to rule over his present portion of the land of Canaan, having been promised it by God. In a sense, he has a more rightful claim to the land upon which he stands than any of the kings around him may have. For God has promised this land to him. And so a king he is, and even Melchizedek recognizes this formally in the next section, which we'll talk about more next week. In verse 18, Melchizedek brings Abram bread and wine, which were traditional gifts given to kings at that time. And so even Melchizedek recognizes Abram formally as a king. And Abram is a king who may be appealed to for rescue. We'll think back on verse 13 where this person escapes from the battle in the Valley of Siddim and comes and appeals to King Abram to rescue Lot. Why did this person appeal to Abram to rescue Lot? Maybe he had concern for Lot, but perhaps his own kinfolk had also been taken. And he knows that if Abram goes to rescue Lot, also his kinfolk who had been taken will be rescued as a byproduct. Whatever his motives may be, this person goes and appeals to King Abram for rescue. But we need to remember that Lot was no longer under Abram's kingship, as it were. He was no longer traveling together with Abram, no longer residing in the nomadic city-state over which Abram presided. And in fact, where Lot settled was considered to be outside of Canaan. We see that from chapter 13 and verse 12, where we read, Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley. There's a contrast there implied. And so even if we understand Abram's kingship in the sense of uh, heir apparent to the land of Canaan, Lot was outside of that land. And so Lot was neither a citizen of his nomadic city, nor a citizen of the land of Canaan, to which Abram was heir apparent. And so, Abram didn't really have an obligation, per se, to rescue Lot. But when this servant comes and appeals to Abram that he might rescue Lot, Abram didn't say, what is it to me? He's not one of my people. He doesn't live in my constituency. Rather, Abram was willing to spread his wings over any who wished protection and care. Somebody comes and asks Abram to exercise his power on their behalf. Abram is ready to acquiesce. He is a king who puts his power to work for those who appeal to him. He doesn't make a half-hearted effort here. Remember, he pursues a total of 240 kilometers. 
And this is not this is not by tank or by armored vehicle. This is probably by camel. 240 kilometers to the rescue. In this capacity, Abram foreshadows the great kings of Israel who will one day come in latter years to rule over God's people in God's land, providing safety and justice to all who take shelter under their rule. There were immigration laws in Israel which provided for people to come and be sheltered under the protection of Yahweh and Yahweh's appointed rulers. And Abram foreshadows those appointed rulers acting on behalf of all who wish to take shelter under their care here in this passage. And ultimately in this respect, Abram foreshadows Christ himself, the benevolent and powerful king par excellence who rules over God's people in God's land and who stands ready to come to the rescue of anybody who needs it. Anybody who asks. As a royal, Abram foreshadows other biblical royals who are benevolent and powerful kings working for the good of God's people. And ultimately, Abram foreshadows Christ who is the ultimate benevolent and powerful royal. And Abram is also acting like a brother here. Abram is partially motivated by his love for his brother. As I pointed out, the word that our ESV translates as kinsman in chapter 14 and verse 14 could be translated or should be rather translated brother if we're to be literal. This word has already appeared in the narrative actually. In the previous chapter, chapter 13 and verse 8, where the ESV again has done us a disservice in rendering it kinsmen, what it should say is, for we are men, brothers. And the sense there in chapter 13 and verse 8 is men shouldn't quarrel like this, let alone brothers. We are men, brothers. That word which signifies brothers is used again here in chapter 14 and verse 14. When Abram heard that his brother had been taken captive, etc., etc. Abram's relentless pursuit of his brother demonstrates the love that he has for him. Abram is concerned about the well-being of his brother. Again, we noted that Abram as a king didn't really have an obligation to Lot any way you look at it. Lot had removed himself from his nomadic city-state, and Lot had taken up residence in an area other than that residence over which God had given Abram claim. And so he really had no obligation to him. So it was love, it was benevolence that motivated him. And his love and his benevolence was directed toward his brother. Again, 175 kilometers to the first phase of the battle where they come at night upon these kings from the east and rout them. But they're not content to have simply won that battle, but they pursue another 65 kilometers 
to make a certain and sure victory, to decimate the opposing forces, perhaps so that there will be no comeback. In this respect also, as a brother, concerned about a brother, Abram foreshadows Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus is our brother from heaven, come to bring us home. Do you realize that when we speak most accurately, we should address God the Father as our Father, and we should address God the Son as our brother. For it was fitting that bringing many sons to glory, the author to the Hebrews says, that he should be made like his brothers in every respect, and yet without sin. This is the way that the Bible speaks about Christ Jesus, the Son of God come to bring many sons to glory, implicitly many other sons. This is the way that the Scripture speaks about Christ's relationship to us. We could contrast the love of Christ Jesus with the love of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. In that parable, the older brother is unwilling that the lost son should return. In reality, the most ultimate reality, the older brother has gone out to find the younger son. He has ventured far from the father's home, away from the fattened calf, away from those fine robes, to find the younger brother. He has ventured all the way into the pigsty to get the younger brother. He has, in reality, put the younger brother over his shoulders as a shepherd carries the sheep to bring the younger brother home. This is what has happened in reality. Christ Jesus, out of love for His brothers, has come a great distance to rescue us. You think 175 kilometers is a long way? Or even if we add to that the next 65 kilometers for a total of 240 the distance from heaven to earth puts that distance of 240 kilometers to shame. Christ Jesus has come a long, long way. In fact, longer than Abram to rescue his brothers. If we think that 240 kilometers speaks of Abram's, lot, Abram's love for his brother Lot, What do we think of the distance, the ground that Christ Jesus has covered to rescue His brothers? We have to feel the love, not only of our King in heaven, whom we have appealed to for rescue, who has come to rescue us, but we have to feel the love of our brother, who has come a long, long way to save us from our enemies. Christ Jesus 
came all the way to earth, all the way to the lowest earthly existence, crucifixion on a Roman cross to rescue his brothers. He was made of no account. He bore the wrath of God to rescue his brothers. He was stripped naked, debased in the sight of all, in order that he might clothe his brothers. Christ Jesus has come like Abram, a powerful and benevolent king, and yet also a brother, a royal brother come a long way to put his power and his benevolence to work for the rescue of his brothers Abram foreshadows not only the latter kings of Israel the later kings of Israel but Christ Jesus the royal brother who comes a long way To rescue us. So what does this mean for us? Like Lot, you belong to God already. But that doesn't exempt you from suffering here and now. Just as it did not exempt Lot. We've seen already that Lot was rescued temporally. But before he was rescued, he was taken captive. I can't imagine that that 175 kilometers to Dan was a pleasant and comfortable 175 kilometers. Until he sees his royal brother come to the rescue, Lot was in a bad way. So in view of the reality that belonging to God doesn't exempt us from suffering, and yet seeing how God raised up Abram to rescue Lot from his temporal sufferings here in this instance, You may feel like God doesn't deliver you nearly as well as He so often delivered His Old Testament people. Has that thought never crossed your mind? That God was always raising up kings and judges and prophets for them? To rescue them from their temporal suffering? And why doesn't He do the same to us? Where is a Moses? Where is a David? Where is an Abram? to come to our temporal rescue. Brothers and sisters, Christ shall do all that the Old Testament saviors did, and then some. Christ is a more comprehensive salvation than the Old Testament salvations. Christ's salvation encompasses Deliverance from real things like hunger, pain, abuse, and more. Christ also delivers us from our spiritual trouble. Christ does come to rescue us from hunger, pain, abuse, temporal things. Christ does come to rescue us from these things. He doesn't come to rescue us from these things the moment you decree and declare your rescue. The moment that you name and claim your rescue. 
the way that prosperity preachers will have you believe. But He will eventually rescue us from all these things. There will be no hunger in heaven. There will be no thirst in heaven. There will be no chronic pain in heaven. Nobody will be in poverty in heaven. Nobody will be abused in heaven. Nobody will be experiencing these temporal sufferings that we experience now in the age to come. And so Christ will deliver us from these things. Our experience now is like the 175 kilometer journey to Dan. Where we are in the hands of the kings from the east. But we know that a rescuer is coming to deliver us even from those temporal things. But Christ has come to deliver us not only from those temporal things, but from the penalty due for our sin. God's wrath, alienation from God and from one another, the corruption of our nature that is part and parcel of our existence now because of sin. Christ will also redeem us from those things. And so Christ brings more comprehensive salvation than any Old Testament Savior ever brings, including Abram here in this section. Christ's salvation is also better in that it is forever. One day all things shall be made new forever. And eternal salvation is greater than a temporal salvation. New Testament salvation feels less immediate. And I think that that's what tends to leave us feeling sometimes like the Old Testament salvations were better. After all, no one has ever ridden 175 kilometers on a camel to rescue me from my present difficulties. New Testament salvation feels less immediate. And I think that's what sometimes makes us feel this way. Like the parting of the Red Sea or this rescue of Abram or the rescue of Lot by Abram was better. But what is better? What is truly better? A band-aid or a cure? Old Testament salvations were just like band-aids. True, Christ does not rescue us immediately from everything that plagues us spiritually and physically. But Christ will rescue us eventually from everything that plagues us physically and spiritually. And He will rescue us not just temporally, give us some reprieve from these things, but He will rescue us forever. And that's something no Old Testament Savior ever did nor could do. Do you ever read these Old Testament stories like this rescue of Lot and think to yourself, oh, that I had someone who loved me like that. Oh, that I had a royal brother to rescue me like Lot had a royal brother to rescue him. Brothers and sisters, you do. Christ is that royal brother. And He loves you better than Abram. He puts a greater power and a fuller benevolence at work and covers a greater distance to rescue you than Lot does here in this passage. 
God's love is shown more greatly in providing Christ than providing Abram. Don't doubt God's love for you simply because He hasn't sent an Abram. He sent Christ. And God's power is shown more greatly in providing Christ than providing Abram. Do not doubt it just because God hasn't sent an Abram for you. God has sent Christ. You may feel like you're in the hands of the enemy for the moment. But as the battle cry was uttered, and Abram and Aner and Eshcol and Mamre swept in on those kings of the east by night to the rescue. So one day shall Christ descend from the heavens with a cry of command, a battle cry to rescue you. Lot's family is blessed through Abram here in this passage. But not all families. The fulfillment of the promise made to Abram back in Genesis chapter 12 and verse 3, that in you all families of the earth shall be blessed, awaits the seed or offspring of Abram, who is like Abram as he is portrayed here, and yet is a greater royal brother who accomplishes a greater royal rescue. Christ Jesus. In Him all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And Lot's family is is blessed through Abram here in this passage, but not ultimately and lastingly blessed. We'll read about some sad developments in the life of Lot's family moving forward, even after this rescue. Ultimate and lasting blessedness is therefore not achieved by Abram in this passage. That kind of deliverance awaits the seed or offspring of Abram, who is like Abram as he is portrayed here, and yet is a greater royal brother who, rest, who accomplishes a greater rescue. Again, Christ Jesus. So in this story, Abram is a benevolent and powerful royal brother. And in this, he foreshadows the later kings of Israel and ultimately Christ Jesus, who is the consummate royal brother who puts his power and benevolence to work and covers a great distance to accomplish rescue for those who take shelter under his wings for those who are his brothers